Amen. We may be seated at this time. Uh, kids are dismissed out this way uh, for an age-relevant Bible study. And uh, I mentioned to you guys uh, earlier that I'm a little bit kind of sentimental when it comes to these kinds of things. And so before I begin my sermon, I want to take a picture of you all. And so I hope that you're okay with this. I know this is very modern and relevant. I'm going to wait for Evan to come down so Evan can be in the picture. They have this really cool app on these phones now where you can take like a, it's called like Pano, or it's like a, it's like a panograph, is that what we call it? Panorama picture, whatever it's called, Pano, panorama, whatever. So, <laughs> all right, so smile on the count of three, one, two, three, say cheese, and be, be still and say cheese. And I'm going to get a poster made of this, last service in the gym, awesome, you guys are great. So, what a wonderful Wonderful job. Um, I love you all. I'm glad to be up here this morning. Uh, I've been out for a couple weeks. Um, as many of you know, two weeks ago, there was a tragedy that involved a family that um, used to be a part of our church. And so uh, I was with many people um, that went, probably about 30, 40 people from our church went there a couple Sundays ago. And uh, a man named John Starfield in, who's the guy we're considering for the associate pastor position. I heard great things, got great feedback. And then last week, uh, we had arranged for James Yandel to come, uh, one of my favorite preachers by far, and um, open the word with us and also tell us a little bit about his trip. Um, and so, uh, and I want to let you know, if you missed that sermon, we're doing this thing now called a podcast. Who knows what a podcast is? Raise your hand. Okay. What a podcast is, is basically every time we preach a sermon here at White Oak, um, we put it up on the website, but we also put it on this thing called a podcast. And so if you go to iTunes and search podcast, you can go to White Oak Houston, because it turns out there's like 50 million White Oak Baptist churches across America. And so if you search White Oak Houston, you can find our podcast. And so his message from last week is on there, and uh, you can subscribe to the podcast. And so even on the Sundays when you're not here gathering with us, you can still hear the message, hear where we're at. Um, or maybe you heard something, and one of the things I've done in the past with a friend of mine, if I'm trying to share with the gospel with them, if I find a sermon online that really, I think, man, I wish they would hear this, a lot of people that you know when you're trying to engage them for the gospel, they'll listen to a podcast. You know, it'll intrigue them. How, see, my wife actually gave one of her coworkers a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and he agreed to read it, and he was one of her coworkers. And so um, that kind of literature, this kind of media online, this kind of audio file that we can listen to, it's just one more way that we can spread the gospel um, as Christians. And so uh, the series that we're in currently right now is called the Why Jesus series. And it's a very, very, very brief series. It's a three-week series. And James opened it for us last week, and he basically talked about why Jesus came and lived. And if you weren't here for that, essentially what James said, he did a great job. He said that Jesus came to take away our sin and restore the world. That is why Jesus came and lived. He came to show us what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. And so Jesus showed us that in a perfect world, how people act and the way things are. Everybody loves each other. Everybody's generous. And so he came to, to model that, but really he came to model that on the way to the cross. And it's interesting because this morning, I want to answer one simple question for you. Why did Jesus die? And what James said last week, and what I absolutely loved, and this is very important for us to understand, that the world has changed. There is no longer this assumed notion across our culture, across our city, of exactly um, why Jesus did everything he did. Most people you know will know that Jesus died, because the most famous symbol in all of the world is the cross. And so people know that he died, they know that he lived, but when we begin to understand why did this happen, because there's always what happened, and there's always, why did it happen? 
And so as you turn with me to Mark 15, so we're going to be this morning, Mark 15, I want us to look and answer one simple question. Why did Jesus die, and what does that mean for us? And as you are turning there, uh, you know, this kind of a sermon series, since it's so brief, I don't have time to walk us all the way through the gospel of Mark, but I'm going to assume that most of you know that Jesus came, God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to the earth to die for our sins. He's lived his life. He's, he's, he began his public ministry at age 30, did it for three years. And what we're picking up on is right after they have crucified Jesus, okay? The Roman politicians crucified Jesus, but I want you to notice it was also the Jewish religious people who crucified Jesus. Because the problem with religion is that it says you do certain things and then God accepts you. And if, if you live a religious life and it's all about a bunch of rules, when somebody comes and begins challenging your rules, the religious people get very angry. And so they decided the only way we can get rid of this guy because he's going to change the world, the only thing we can do is kill him. We live in a world today that has the same principle. Eventually there comes a point with certain individuals in our society where we deem them so dangerous that we have to get rid of them via death. Our, our, you know, we look at this like, as like a barbaric society. We do the same thing today. And so Jesus, they decide to kill him on the cross. He was murdered by the, by the politicians and by the religious people. And they chose to crucify him because back in that day, that was the best way that they could kill someone to ensure two things. Number one, that they died. And number two, that it lasted as long as possible. And so God comes to die. And we're going to hear his words on the cross right here. Stand with me as we read God's word. Mark 15, starting in verse 33. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen for you. Mark 15, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that would have been noon our time, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would have been three in the afternoon. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. May God bless his word. You may be seated at this time. Before we go any farther this morning, uh, let's pray as the church that God would open up our mind to his word. Father, we thank you for this time. And God, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to come in this moment, God, and to speak to us. God, I pray for those who do not know you this morning and who are, who are in this room. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would talk to them. I pray you would draw them to yourself. And for those of us who are believers this morning, God, I pray your word would be fresh in our hearts, God. No matter how many times we've heard it, God, your word never returns void, Father. And we just pray that you would uphold that promise to us this morning. Amen. So Jesus is dead. God, who was Jesus, is 
dead. I want us to, to think about this. I want us to, to, to let that sink in, that this man who claimed to be God and who truly was God is now dead. He was murdered on a cross. And I want you to think about the, the disciples. The disciples were men that in Jesus' life, he, he came and he began calling men to himself that once he died, they were going to create the church. They were going to institute the church. And we are here today because of the way Jesus discipled the disciples. And, and there were 12 of them. And they were not the perfect bunch of people, but they, they got the job done to some degree. I want you to think about how sad they must have been. And it is my belief that oftentimes we focus on the despair of the disciples and how sad they were. And, and I mean, this was their friend, this was their leader, this was their teacher, this was God who they had met. I mean, they're very sad, and we think about that a lot. But I don't think we think as often about their confusion. Why would God die? Like, me as a human, and you as a human, you understand the concept of death because you know you're not all-powerful, right? You know that there are forces in this world that are more powerful than you. And you know one day they will take their toll. And so as humans, we, we accept this idea because we're not all powerful. We can't control everything. But when you're God, it's supposed to be different, right? Like when you're the God of the universe, you're not supposed to have to be subject to death. And so there was probably some confusion. And I want to read something in Matthew 16, okay? When Jesus begins telling his disciples that he is going to die, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, this can't happen to you. Peter says this, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, Peter's rebuking God, not a good idea. Saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you, you shall never die. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, I want you to hear this, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The only way that we will understand this question this morning of why did Jesus die is to look at it from God's perspective and not our own perspective. In fact, most things in life, the reason why you generally don't understand it is because you're looking at it from your perspective and not God's perspective. So why did Jesus die? I heard it said this way, and I like this. Why did a man who could raise the dead allow himself to die? Think about that. Why did a man who could raise the dead allow himself to die? And here's the answer, and then I want to explain it. Because someone had to die. Somebody had to die. And the reason why I say it like that is because I think that we often forget that when Jesus came to the world, the wrath of God was already in motion. I think sometimes we think of it as like this neutral thing. as oh, what's going to happen next? But what James talked about last week is that in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, the first two humans, they sin against God. And the second that they sin against God, because God is perfect and holy and loving and good, if you walk away from what is good, if you walk away from holiness, it's just a, an implication that what happens is you sin, and now God's wrath must deal with this sin. And so when Jesus came, I want you to, to image 2,000 years ago as if Jesus is coming to prevent something that is on its way. You see, the trigger had been pulled. The bullet was in the air. The question was, who was going to take the bullet? Because in Romans 6.23, it says this, for the wages of sin is death. 
Okay, I want, I want to illustrate this for you. When you choose to jump off of a 300-foot building, you choose death, right? And let's add some alligators too, right? So there's a 300-foot building, not, not in water, they're on concrete. So there's alligators on concrete. So even if you make it and just break all your legs, you're still in trouble, okay? So when you jump off a 300-foot building to a pit of alligators that are on top of concrete, you choose death. To say that, well, I want to choose to jump off a building, but I don't want to choose to die, that doesn't make sense, does it? No, because gravity exists. And gravity really exists, especially when you're on top of a of a building. It's like extra existing, right? And so what happens is every time you make a decision, there is what you do, and then there, there is the implication of what you do. And we can sit around debating gravity, or we can just all say, yeah, I'm pretty sure that gravity exists. Let me try this. Yeah, we're still good. Okay. So gra- gravity still exists, all right? Gravity is in the world. We know it. We experience it. And you also know one thing, that sin brings death. Have you ever tried to do something that was not God's way, eventually what happens? Everything messes up. You have experienced it in your life time and time again because God is good and God has created an order. And when we go away from life, we lose what? Life. When we go away from goodness, what do we enter? Pain. And so what Paul says in Romans is that since sin brings death, that means that ever since Adam and Eve, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, Death has been coming for us. It's in motion. It's coming our way. And what the cross was was Jesus standing in the way of the wrath of God. And sometimes people will ask this. Well, why couldn't God just snap his fingers and forgive sin? Okay. And I've wondered this as well. Why death, right? We begin to ask, well, why did somebody have to die? Why did it have to happen that way? Um, I think that's a, a common, fair question. But I think in the concept of language, we have this ability to make very complicated things sound very simple, right? You can say anything simply. Of course, you can say, well, why couldn't God have just done it a different way, right? But that's like somebody saying this, and, and I've heard people say this before. They're like, oh, well, hey, just go set up the sound system, okay? They'll say something like that. Do you know how complicated it is to set up a sound system? Okay, like right now, you are hearing my voice through the speakers, but let me walk you through this simple act of, oh, just set up the sound system. Right now, my voice is going into this microphone, okay? This microphone goes down this wire that you can't see because that would be ugly, and it goes into this little thing called, I don't know what this is, but it's like a receiver type thing, right? And so it goes to this, right? And then this thing sends a signal to a receiver back here, right, that's sitting on top of here. And that receiver has a signal, and it takes this thing called XLR cord, which we had to buy, somebody had to make. It takes a cord out of the back of that and plugs it into a snake. Do you know what a snake is? No, let me explain what a snake is really quick. A snake is a sound system tool because what you notice is there's a bunch of microphones up here, okay? But Matt's controlling it from all the way back there. It's not magic. It's called a snake, okay? And so what this thing is is basically all of the cords that need to be plugged into that board, but it would be weird if I was, like, you know, putting it over Logan's head and under his, you know, it would be kind of weird. So we have this thing, a snake, and so we plug it into the snake, and this snake, so I speak here, it goes to here, sends a signal to here, it goes into the snake, and the snake has a cord that goes all the way around here, up through there, into that board, and once it gets into that board, we have to EQ it, make sure it sounds good, turn the volume on, turn that on. These things are all run by battery, run by power, which someone had to install, And that's not even the speakers, because then, that's just to get a signal from here to there. That doesn't help us get a signal to come out of here so you can hear me. So two more chords come out of that board all the way back up here into the, what? Snake, good job. Into the snake, and then two different chords come out of that snake, go all the way around here and up into here. 
And then because of that, because of all of that complexity, because of all of that vastness of a sound system, you can hear my voice right now. But you say, just set up the sound system. (laughs) Give me a break. It's a lot of work. And it's kind of like that when we say, well, why couldn't God just, you know, have forgiven everybody and... Uh, you know, why couldn't he have just, you know, snapped his fingers and sin was gone? That's like me sitting across a couple struggling in their marriage and saying, okay, you're, you're struggling in your marriage, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. Say you're sorry. <laughs> Say you're sorry. Forgive each other. Now get out of here and go have a happy marriage. Is it that simple? Or I'm like, well, you know, maybe if your job is a, a, a lawyer, all you do is debate some cases, right? Chris would disagree with that, I'm sure. It's not that simple. You can say anything simply. But the thing is, is that God is forgiving. He is loving. He is merciful. But he is also powerful. He is just. He is perfect. You see, God is more than just love. And the only attribute that our society seems to like about God is that he's loving. And when you try to take a couple qualities of people, but you don't want the whole person, you don't really love them. You're just using them. And when God, when it comes to him, and when you read the scriptures and you see all these things about him, he has a beautifully, wonderfully intricate nature that is beautiful and powerful. When we just want to take, well, God's loving, therefore I can do whatever I want to do, or God's loving, so we should just forgive everything I've ever done. What we've done is we have reduced God to something that we can understand. But he's more than that. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, because their freedom was such a beautiful thing, when they sinned, it was such a big deal. It was a very big deal because the perfect God of the universe had created them and given them free will so they could have true love. And then they used that against God to be disobedient and to wander into sin. And now since you've walked away from life, the only other option is death. That is the implication of what they have done. And because there was this this disarray in the universe, and because things had been set off, forgiveness had to come, but forgiveness is never free. Have you ever forgiven somebody? Does it hurt sometimes? You still feel wrong sometimes when you forgive them? And I believe that through the Holy Spirit, we can have true forgiveness, but Jesus still paid for that. I uh, I was getting some paint this week. We were doing a lot of work and painting some hallways and uh, the painting guys gave me this list that I had to go get of different things. And I walked into Sherwin-Williams because Sherwin-Williams is the best paint, by the way. I've recently learned this. Um, no offense for you guys like Bear or Valspar or whatever, you know, but Sherwin-Williams is where it's at. They've got their own store, which means it's legit. And so I went to the Sherwin-Williams store, and I walked in there, and I had this piece of paper. And uh, the guy, his name was Jason, who was helping me. And I walked up to Jason, and I said, hey, Jason, I need some, uh, I need some paint. I need four gallons of this kind of paint, and he's like, okay, so what's it for? And I began telling him kind of what we're doing, what's going on in our church, the things God's doing, and he could tell I was very impressed, and I got the vibe. He didn't say this, but I could tell he, he kind of seemed like a Christian in that moment, you know, and uh, he said, okay, well, that's cool. He goes, so you need four gallons of this kind of paint. I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, how about this? How about I give you five gallons, and I give it to you for free? I was like, that sounds great. So, um, so literally, he gave us about $300 worth of like top-notch paint for absolutely free, However, free to us, nothing's free, okay? 
that's an important thing. I, I think free is a perspective thing, right? Free, free is, there's no such thing in the universe that is necessarily, like, free. It, it might be free to us, but it's not free to them. And so this guy, when he gave me this paint, it's free to our church, and we received the blessing of it. But Sherwin-Williams paid for that paint. They paid for it. They, they paid for the machines that made it. They paid for the cans. They, prayed, they paid for Jason to be working there at that moment in order to give us free paint. You see, it's free to us, but nothing is free. And that's the world that we live in. And so the second that we sin against God, the second that we walk away, something has to be done. There has to be a payment. It's just the way the world works. But what we see, and I love this, that this equation that, that God's perfect justice plus God's perfect mercy equals Jesus, who was God, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. It was the only equation that fit. God's perfect justice, so somebody had to pay, and somebody had to atone through their perfection, because imperfection then requires perfection. So someone has to pay, someone has to be perfect, but humans can't do it because we created the problem, because we're imperfect. And so God's like, well, since we need somebody perfect... I'm the only one who's perfect. It's like the not it game, and God's the only one who can do it, right? Which, and I don't want to go down this road. This is very complicated, which shows the beauty of the Trinity from the beginning. Since, since somebody was going to have to die, so it, it works out that God could come down in one person but still be ruling and reigning as the Father. Don't want to go down that. But you see the beauty of the Trinity, of community, of, of there being a person who can go down and who can pay the penalty for our sins. And so because God was just, but because God was merciful and loved us, what that means is that Jesus had to die. So why did, why did Jesus have to die? Because justice and mercy are in the nature of God. So our choosing of sin, which required justice, plus God's unconditional love for us, which is mercy, equals Jesus dying. So why did Jesus have to die? Because Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but also John 3.16, for God so loved the world. When you read the Bible, and when you go from beginning to end, you'll see two things. There's a lot more of that, but you'll see two things specifically. God is perfect. His will will be done. But he loves his people. (laughs) You look at God's interactions with Israel, God's will will be done. His will and commandments will be followed. But even when we don't follow those, he still loves us. So Jesus died because the bullet was in the air. The decision had been made. Death had come into the universe. But Jesus wanted to embrace it instead of having to have us embrace it. Second thing, I want to look at, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I could probably preach a sermon on every line of this passage we read, but I'm going to take a wild guess for most people when you read this. Mark 15, 34 um, might catch your attention when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And probably a a better translation, instead of saying Jesus cried out, would be to say that Jesus screamed. Jesus shrieked out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? forsaken me. And it's interesting because a lot of scholars and even scholars that question the authenticity of the Bible will oftentimes look at this and say, you know, we don't, we're, not, we're not sure about everything, but we're pretty sure this actually happened. Most scholars, even ones that want to try to 
put their authority over the Bible and choose what is right, what is wrong, what's good, and what is bad, even those scholars will often look at this and say, you know what, probably this legitimately happened. Because if you're just making something up, you wouldn't put this. If you're trying to promote your religion, if you're trying to just make this up out of nowhere, I mean, you want your figure to be like this perfect person, you know? Number one, not only does his death not make sense, because he's supposed to be the all-powerful God, that's kind of confusing, but then also, why is he sitting here saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is somebody who is God saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I want you to notice this on the cross. God is doing something. What is going on here is between Jesus and God because God is accomplishing something on the cross. You will notice Jesus is not crying out, oh, my body hurts so much. He's not focusing on his physical pain, though I'm sure there was a lot of that. He's not saying my body hurts so much. I'm in so much pain. I'm bleeding. Someone clean this up. He's not saying anything like that. He's not complaining about the people who betrayed him. He's not saying, Judas, why did you do this to me? Why did you turn me in for 30 pieces of silver? He's not saying that. He's not saying, oh, you, you, you religious people, oh, you politicians, why did you do this to me? I can't believe it. you murdered me. He's not complaining about how lonely he is. He's not saying, I'm so lonely, I wish I had a friend. He's not talking about his psychological needs. He is talking directly to God because he knows why he's here. He knows he's not here because of Judas. He knows he's not here because of his physical pain. He knows he's not here because of the Jewish authorities, and he knows he's not here because of his inability to be all-powerful. He is here because God the Father willed him to be here. God is doing something on the cross. And what we see in Psalm 22.1 is actually in this statement, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually imitating, he's actually reciting Psalm 22.1, which a lot of the Jews would have been familiar with at that time, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist is talking about how much pain that they're in. And what we see here is Jesus is bearing the pains of human. He's reciting a psalm that many of them would have known. And so what he's saying is that pain that you feel in life, that pain, that hurt, that despair, that lostness, I'm bearing that right now on your behalf. I have to feel this way. So this is between God and Jesus but ultimately for our benefit. God is doing something on the cross because sin had to be paid for, but God didn't want it to be you and me. Jesus died on the cross. This is so important to understand because to have a resurrection, you have to have a, a death. In order to overcome death, there has to be that moment of death. And in Mark chapter 14, before Jesus goes to the cross, he does something that is very special that we follow even to this day. I can't say how amazing this is, that literally 2,000 years ago, some guy, without the benefit of technology, without a, a, a press, without Twitter, without YouTube, I mean, he, he literally institutes something that you and I as believers are going to partake in together as the church. And what this is called is the Lord's Supper. And in Mark 14, before Jesus dies, now that we understand what's going on, what he does is he does this symbolic act where he basically takes some bread and some wine and he gives it to them saying that this is my body and this is my blood broken 
for your behalf. Broken for your redemption. Broken for your restoration. Broken for your ability to spend eternity with me in heaven forever. So the last thing is that the Lord's Supper is the remembrance of a penalty that we didn't have to pay. The Lord's Supper is the remembrance of a penalty that we didn't have to pay. One of the cool things about being married to a nurse is I learn a bunch of medical stuff that I would have probably never known otherwise. Um, and we always have this issue where she says things, and I don't know what she's talking about, you know, but I don't want to make her stop and explain it, so I just nod my head. Um, but one thing I've learned, having been married to her, is the story about Edward Jenner. You ever heard of this guy? Edward Jenner? Um, basically, throughout history, one of the things that has happened throughout civilization is diseases would, would come upon the people. And, I mean, back then, I mean, it would wipe out complete people groups. And these diseases would be contagious. And one of those diseases was called smallpox, which some of you have heard of. We still have issues with it today off and on. And what happened was Edward Jenner, where he was at in the late 18th century, smallpox was a big deal. And a lot of people were getting smallpox. But what they began to realize is there was this rumor that there was a certain kind of person who would never get smallpox. There was a certain kind of person. And there was this rumor going around that these milk maidens, these ladies who milked the cows for a living, which probably would have been a cool job, these ladies who were milking cows for a living, they would get this thing called cowpox, which was like a less serious version of smallpox. And whenever they got cowpox, they'd get kind of serious, but it wasn't as big of a deal, so they would get better. And there was this rumor going around that for whatever reason, these women never really seemed to get smallpox. Therefore, they would not be killed when it went around. And so he began to test this theory, and he found this eight-year-old little boy, and I'm, I'm sure he did it out of a genuine attitude, but he basically gets his eight-year-old little boy, and Edward Jenner begins to infect him with cowpox. The boy gets, and I'm not going to tell you how he did it, because it's very disgusting, but he entered it via a cut in the kid's arm. And so he gets small, or cowpox, and he gets sick, but he gets better. And then he intentionally, six weeks later, takes two big syringes and one on each arm, injects him with the smallpox virus. <laughs> Talk about rolling the dice, a little leap of faith here. He injects him with the, with the disease that's killing everybody in the town. Anyway, so the kid gets a little bit sick, but doesn't get very sick at all, doesn't die. And because of what this man done, there was kind of some thoughts before him, but he was really the one that began to, to, to promote this idea that if we can find a way to have people experience this disease, to make their body think that they've had this disease before, when your body gets a disease, it begins to build up uh, immunity to where when it comes around again, you can fight it off. But the problem was is that the first time they got smallpox was also the last time they got smallpox. I know different people have different ideas on vaccinations and whether they're good or not. I don't have mine made up, my mind made up on all those things. But the basic theory behind it is that if you can find a way to experience a disease but not d die from it, you're immune to it. And I think it's very humbling when you think about the reality that in order to not get this disease, you need something outside of yourself protect you. And even though these people are protected from these diseases, what they are using is part of the disease that other people had and most likely other people died from that they may not die. And when we take the Lord's Supper, 
what Jesus did for us on the cross, it makes us immune to the wrath of God when we stand before him. And the reason why Christianity is so, so I think, it, it makes so much sense is because it puts us all on a level playing field, right? We've all got sin. We, we've all got junk in our life. Like, we've all got things that we do that are wrong. The question is, are we going to be the people who want to get over this? Are we going to be the people who want to get back to God? Or do we just want to live in our sin? And every time we partake of communion, and every time we, we partake of, of the Lord's table, what we are remembering is that this is a penalty, this is a death that we didn't have to die. And I want to close with this idea. The world tells you this. The problem to all your issues is that you got to go inside yourself and find the good. You ever heard this? You got to go inside yourself, find the good, and pull it out. You know, I don't know, but I've been looking forever, and I can't find the good inside of me, right? Maybe it's in my back. I don't, I don't know where it's at. I mean, I, I can't find it. Maybe you got more good in you than I got in me, but I can't find it. In fact, when I begin to really begin to look deep inside, it's like scary, right? You ever done that? It's like being in the middle of the ocean. Like one of my biggest fears is being in the middle of the ocean and like looking down. And I seem like a huge blue well or something that's like just 100 feet long. It's one of my big, I have nightmares about those types of things. And when you begin to look inside yourself and when you begin to even question your own motives of why you do a lot of the things you do, it gets really messy, doesn't it? And what the Bible says is not to look inside yourself for salvation and for goodness. The Bible says, look to the cross. The Bible says because of what Jesus has done, you can receive forgiveness if you believe in Jesus. And therefore, when you stand before God on that last day, even though you're an imperfect person, you are immune to the wrath of God. Because of what Jesus did. Because you partook of the body and the blood of Jesus, which killed him, that you may live. And so Jesus came and died because somebody had to, but he did not want it to be us. And church, Easter's coming. And Easter is an awesome celebration. And we're going to have a great time together as a church celebrating Easter, celebrating the resurrection. But this week, we need to meditate on the death of Jesus. Because if you meditate on the death of Jesus, if in your prayer time, you take a little extra time this week to focus upon what Jesus did on the cross, when we come here on Easter morning, you'll get it. And so we gather together today as a church, all of us together in this room, and we're going to partake of this table because it's the way that we remember and give thanks for the fact that somebody had to die, but Jesus didn't want it to be us. I'm going to close this morning by, uh, by reading the text in Mark where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to, to read this text, and then I'm going to pray for our time together. And after I pray, you can begin to make your way up if you want to come up and get communion yourself, or if you would like it brought to you. You can remain at your seat and lift your hand. So I'm going to read this. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. And then when I finish praying, you can begin to come forward. And we'll close our time remembering the cross and how Jesus didn't want us to die. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Mark 14, starting in verse 22. And as the disciples were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And Jesus said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus, we love you. And we remember God. And God, we know that all you ask of us is just to trust you and to be grateful. And I pray that the, the reverence of the sermon this morning and, and the seriousness of it, God, I, I pray that it would incline our hearts to see our sin and to realize that that sin was canceled out because of what you did on the cross. And God, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, God, I pray it's not a repetitive thing, God. I pray it's as if we're partaking of the elements for the very first time. I pray that you would remind us that that the cracker that we eat, God, what that represents is your crushed and broken body on the cross for our sins. And I pray that the juice would represent, Father, your shed blood on the cross, which brought us new life. Jesus, we identify with you this morning. We know that you died to save the world and to restore everything, God, and that's what we want to be a part of. We want to be a part of the kingdom of God. We don't want this world, Father. We want to be a part of your ways. We want to identify with your death, God. So God, speak to our hearts this morning as the believers come forward to identify and give thanks and remember your beautiful death on the cross for us. It's in the perfect and holy name of Jesus Christ that we pray today. Amen. You may come forward at this time.